Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here. We're working our way through the book of Ephesians, um, and we're doing a five-week mini-series. Um, you guys are here for week one. Good job. Uh, and we're starting this week, and we're looking at marriage. That's what we're doing. This whole section is um, kind of a profound look at how God designed the, kind of the internal mechanics of marriage to work. And so we're going to be unpacking that stuff. So that's kind of where we're going. You guys, happy Valentine's Day. That's coming up this week. Husbands, you're welcome. I just reminded you. Um, do something about it, right? Uh, make it a good one. We're starting this new series on marriage that I hope is going to ultimately bless our married folks and, um, and our singles as they're looking to marry and contemplating. And, and here's the deal. I, I know, and I kind of state this up front, and, and I know I'm talking to multiple audiences as I begin this series and as we teach through this. I know people are coming to this with a lot of different backgrounds and, and a lot of different experiences. And you know, some of you, this is a hard season. I know, uh, Valentine's Day and things like that for some singles that, that um, have just, romance hasn't come your way or maybe it's gone the wrong way, right? Some of you have gone through painful marriages and divorces, and I know that, um, that that's, that's painful. Here's the deal. I hope that this series is going to be encouraging to all of us um, and, and that it's going to ultimately push us to community because that's what we'll unpack as we talk about. What we're talking about is God's gift of community um, as we move forward. All right, Jim Collins is a guy that, that wrote a number of leadership books. Um, I've discovered over the last, I guess, five, six years that I'm a little bit of a leadership geek. Um, I didn't realize this before, but I really like enjoy, I enjoy reading books on, on um, corporate leadership and, and running teams and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and one book that he wrote is called Built to Last. It was, it was pretty fascinating. It was this idea of how do we build a corporation that ultimately isn't just like, you know, spike up and do great and then disappear, but it's actually built. What are the building blocks that actually allow it to last, right? And, and I think a lot of us, honestly, when we approach marriage, that's kind of how, that's what we're hoping for. We're hoping something for something that's going to be built to last, right? Now, that's not a bad hope. That's really not. That's a great hope, especially considering the landscape of marriage today. Um, things aren't going so well. <laughs> with marriage in America. Let's just be honest. Uh, it doesn't matter which stats you look at. There's a little bit of variance, but the outcome isn't great. Right now, depending on which stat you look at, most marriages, most marriages end in divorce. It's between 50 and 60% of all marriages. Five to six out of every 10 marriages will end in divorce. Those are not good gambling odds. <laughs> Those really aren't. Um, what that means you know, it's, it's like what they say, it's, you know, everyone's happily married, it's the stuff that comes after that's hard, 
right? I mean, everybody starts out with good intentions. Everybody starts out with a lot of hope and then things get hard. That's the reality of it. And so building something that, that you want it to last is a, is a good goal, but I don't think it's a good enough goal. We don't want marriages that are just built to last. I, I've seen too many that have lasted, but not real well. I mean, I've been to 50th wedding anniversaries, right? And everybody's celebrating and you're like, congratulations on cohabitating for 50 years, right? And seeing each other, you know, kind of calmly over coffee and then going your separate ways. And I don't know about you, but I want more than that for my marriage. I don't want to just build a structure that lasts, but isn't filled with love and joy and discovery and intimacy, right? I mean, that's not what we want. We don't want something that just lasts. We want something that is real and fulfilling and joyful. Jim Collins wrote another book, um, and I like the title of this book a little bit better for our, our series. Um, that book's called Good to Great. And in that book, he looked at companies that were good, that were succeeding, that were actually doing well, but, but they needed to change some things to actually become great. That, that they could move from simply being a profitable company to being a truly great company. And I like that idea for my marriage, to tell you the truth. I want that kind of marriage, not one that just lasts, but is continually moving from good to great. That no matter where it is, it's getting better. That no matter how intimate and joyful and wonderful, and, and all, that, it's, that it's continually pursuing, going deeper into something that's even more fulfilling. So you guys, that, that's my goal for me. That's my goal for my kids. That's my goal for us. For my church. I want us to have marriages that not only last, but are, are filled with intimacy and joy and, 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 and all the real stuff that God has intended for us to experience. So that's what we're going to talk about, you guys. We're going to be talking about love. We're going to be talking about marriage. And so I'm going to be talking to those of you who are married. Some of you are in great marriages. Things are good, and that's awesome. We're going to talk about how it not only can stay good, but can get better. We're going to be talking about not just like, okay, hopefully I can ride this wave and it stays going, but what are the things that we can intentionally do to keep the wave going, to, to, to actually continue investing into and building the intimacy of our marriages? Some of you, honestly, are struggling in your marriages. Some of you, I mean, you know, if we had gotten a small glimpse into the warfare that took place before you even came to church this morning, things are hard. Intimacy is broken. You're having a difficult time connecting. I mean, that's, you guys, there's no shame in admitting it. That, that's the reality of a lot of our marriages. In fact, even the good to great marriages, we all go through seasons of struggle, right? So maybe you're in that season right now. I want to give you hope. That's my goal, is, is to give you hope and tools so that, that you, you, you want to move forward and you can move forward into greater intimacy, right? Some of you have been through a divorce. Some of you are coming from broken homes where your parents divorced. And you're just asking very simple questions like, is it even possible? What does a healthy marriage even look like? I don't even know what it looks like, right? I want to give you a glimpse into that as we open up Scripture and talk about that. Some of you are single and you're wondering, how do I become the kind of person that's going to have that kind of marriage? Are there things that I could be doing now to help prepare for that? The answer is yes. We're going to unpack some of that and talk about how we can have the right vision of what marriage can be and start preparing our hearts to pursue it during this season. 
So in this series, we're going to be focusing on God's design for marriage, how he laid it out, what his intentions were for it. We're going to be talking about how marriage roles fit into that design. Um, We read through Ephesians 5, right? You guys know what's coming. This is a section that is very heavy on roles in marriage, Um, you know, and some of you are like, seriously, Steve, right? Isn't that a bit archaic? little patriarchal to be talking about how the husband's supposed to be the leader and, and the wife's supposed to submit and respect her husband. I mean, can we even use that language today? Um, I'm going to try and pr- lay out to you that honestly, this is not meant to in any way be degrading or dehumanizing or in any way uh, make someone lesser than someone else, um, but are in fact dignifying roles of mutual submission and mutual celebration and simply looking to God to speak through this thing. So, so we're going to be talking about the design of roles in marriage and how that fits. And we're going to talk about sex. It's going to happen. Just letting you know, if you're uncomfortable with that, I'm sorry in advance, but you can't really talk about marriage without talking about sex. Um, And the Bible has a way of just kind of very bluntly talking about sex, so I'm going to follow that, okay? Pretty good example. So we're just going to talk about it. So I'm going to warn you, those of you who have kids that you like to bring to service with you, some of the services, some of what's going on is going to be PG-13, okay? And and we got trailhead kids right back here. If you you don't want them in, you can keep them in here. That's awesome. Just be prepared. Conversations are coming, all right? I'm just warning you. They're the conversations you should be having, and you're the one that should be having them with them, right? Um, and that's awesome, but just want you to be aware of that, all right? All right, I'm going to let you know as well, this is a five-week series. We're going to be looking at the goal of marriage, the design of marriage, the role of husbands, the role of wives, the role of sex, and, and ultimately how God is doing this incredible redemptive thing through the whole thing. That, that's kind of where we're going. We're going to end it with actually having a, a, a weekend workshop on... Um, Friday, March 8th, and on Saturday, March 9th, we're going to be hosting the Real Marriage series. Now, Mark and Grace Driscoll have been touring for like last year. They released a, a book last January, um, and um, I've heard a lot, a lot of good things about the series, and I'm excited about bringing the opportunity here. We have arranged to, to you know, not have Mark here live, um, but we are bringing flat Mark in, um, the simulcast. And so we're going to be able to enjoy his teaching and, um, the insights that, that he brings. Um, and that is going to be a free event. We're not charging you for this. Um, we're hosting it. We want it to be a gift to you. We want it to be something that equips you, um, to move into intimacy in your marriage. And, uh, it is a series that is geared to both singles and married. So you don't need to feel like you're, you have to be married to come to this. It is content is specifically geared to both. Now, here's the deal, you guys. Men, this thing's coming up. Why don't you plan for it? Okay? Don't wait for your wife to ask you, right? Don't wait for her to nudge you and say, what do you think? Lead, all right? Initiate. Say, hey, I think this will be a great idea. This will be fun. Do better. Like, take the next step and actually arrange childcare. Find a babysitter, okay? So that you guys can come and not be distracted, if you want to go the next step, that's even better. You know, get a, get a local hotel room uh, and just make a weekend of it, right? It's a Friday night till fairly late, and then it's a Saturday morning. It'll be a great chance. You're going to have a lot to talk about, a lot to process. And if you can create a quiet space to do that, um, it really is going to be a good investment into your marriage. So that's coming up four weeks from now toward the end of our series. There's going to be information released on the city about that. You're like, what's the city? That's our online communication tool. Um, you can sign up on the city. It takes like 15 seconds, okay? You can do it at a connection point, which is a little table in the lobby. And once you sign up, 
um, basically you'll be informed. That's our tool for communicating to you about all the things that we have going on at Trailhead Church, all the events and, and, and all the stuff like that so that you can be aware and, and uh, be engaged, okay? All right, today, before we get into all the role stuff, before we get into all the husband stuff and the wife stuff, which we're getting into, today we're going to take a chance to look and see where it came from. We're going to take a step back in order to look forward because I believe that we need to know what marriage was meant to be before we can renew our hope for what it can be. So we're going to take a little bit of time and we're going to look at the origin of marriage and and ultimately what it was meant to be so that we can renew our hope for what it can be. So in uh, verse 31 of Ephesians 5, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That quote actually comes from Genesis chapter 2, the very beginning of the Bible, right after Adam and Eve are created, right after he gave them the gift of marriage. So that's where we're going, okay? Flip over Genesis 1. It's all the way at the beginning. It's page 1 in our Bibles. Not hard to find. If you're looking on your iPad or your iPhone, I don't know, browse, flip, whatever you do with those things, get over there. If you don't have a Bible, you're fine, just listen. But we're going to uh, Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at kind of the origins of this thing to help us unpack its purpose to give us, ultimately deliver us to hope. All right, Genesis chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 28. And God said, now this is during the creation week scenario of Genesis 1. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God speaks, things happen. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kind and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man, mankind, humans, in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion, stewardship, over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him, male and female, He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, in Genesis 1, we see God in the process of creating, and He creates um, just an incredible thing. I mean, just color and shapes and sizes and life, and I mean, creation is phenomenal. We have an incredibly creative God. And at the end of that process, he creates mankind. And he creates mankind unique in all of creation because he creates mankind, men and women, in his own image. Unlike anything else he's created, he has, in a sense, given life to everything, but he has created mankind specifically to exist in his image. And, and, and that is part of, honestly, the job description of being human. I think when we look at this, we're actually seeing the job description of what it means to be human. You want to know what you're supposed to do in life. It's right here. There are three things going on. The first is that we are supposed to image God. We are supposed to reflect back to God, His character and His glory, and we are supposed to live in the overflow of His joy. That, that We are created to do that. Secondly, we were created to love. 
right? He gave Adam Eve and Eve Adam. They were to live in community, right? Sharing the love that God has poured out on them with each other. So they were supposed to love their spouse. And they were supposed to create culture. God had placed them in a garden. What's a garden? A garden is a cultivated space of chaos, right? That's what happens with a garden, right? So God started them, basically said, here, look, I'm going to give you a cultivated area. I want you to keep it and expand it. You are to be culture creators. You are the stewards over the created order. You are my representatives to take care of the entire created order. And so you're supposed to love God and image God. You're supposed to love your spouse, right? And enjoy your spouse. And you are supposed to be productive, right? Put your hand to work and produce something just like God has produced, right? What's ironic is in America, we really hold as one of the highest values, the pursuit of happiness. And what's ironic is as long as we pursue happiness, we'll never attain it. Why? Because happiness is a byproduct of being what God has created us to be. You want to know how to be happy? Fulfill the job description of Genesis 1. Love God, love your spouse, be productive. And what's ironic is we spend so much time running from that, don't we? We try to live life on our own terms. If I'm going to be happy, I sure can't live it according to God's terms. I have to live it according to my terms, right? If I'm going to be happy, my spouse better love me. My spouse better serve me. My spouse better be like infatuated with me, right? If I'm going to be happy, we spend all of our time running from work, right? If I can finally just get that job where I get paid so much to do so little, right? If I could just be retired and learn how to, I don't know, play the cello, that would just be awesome, right? What's ironic is is that is the very thing that robs us from happiness. (laughs) We're running from the job description of our own, the way we were wired. Love God, love your spouse. Engage in creating culture and productive work, right? That, that's what we were asked to do. So as image bearers, we are to represent God to the created order and steward the entire created order. That's what we were, the job description that was given to us. Now what's interesting is in, in Genesis 1 here, very interesting phrase in, in verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image. What's up with the plural? It's just kind of weird, right? I mean, we know that, that the God of the Bible is mono, right? Monotheistic. is a single God. In fact, Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, also wrote the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy 6.4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God. That was part of the Shema. The, the Jews repeated that every single day in their daily prayer to remind themselves there was a singular God. All the other nations around them were polytheistic. They believed in a God of the sun and a God of the moon and a God of the ocean and a God of the hill and, and a God of that country and a God of that town. And a, right. And so your God and my God, the Jews believed in a single God, creator God, who created all things and was sovereign over all things. That was the God of the Bible. So what's up with the plural language? It's just like God being like the queen. You know, like, I think we will have our tea now, right? Is this just him, like, like being all royal about himself? I don't think so. I think what we're actually getting is very early in the text, a glimpse into the nature of God. As you look through the rest of Scripture, what you find is that God reveals himself, and at the heart of God is a mystery. And we have given that term, that mystery, the term the Trinity. Really weird idea. And honestly, if you're incredibly comfortable with it, it's because you're probably not thinking carefully about it. It doesn't make sense. It'll, it'll blow your brain. The Trinity basically says this. There are three 
people. <laughs> the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there is one God, right? The Father's not the Son, and the Son's not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Father. They are absolutely unique and independent in their identity, but they are absolutely united in essence. Three who's, one what. And you're like, oh yeah, I, I knew that. I did a youth camp once. We talked about an egg, right? You got one egg, but there's, you, know, you got the shell, and you got the white, and you got the yolk. It doesn't work. The shell's not the white, and the white's not the yolk. There's one God, right? One essence made up of three people. There is not a single analogy, human analogy, that makes sense of this. If, if we find one, we're oversimplifying. This is a mystery, okay? But what this mystery tells us is at the heart of God, there's community. God didn't create Adam and Eve because he was lonely. God didn't create Adam and Eve because he was like, suddenly had a bright idea one day. If I create somebody, I can talk to them, right? God was eternal community. Think about what that means. For all of eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mutual love, knowing and being known, a dance of celebration of the other, eternal community. God didn't create because he needed us. He created because there was so much of him. He wanted the overflow of his joy. When we say God is love, how can love be defined outside of community? God is eternal love because at the heart of God is an eternal celebration of the other. The Father celebrating the Son, the Son celebrating the Spirit, the Spirit celebrating the Father. Of giving and, and being given to, of knowing and being known. Unity and diversity. And that's why we needed someone else. If we were created in the image of God to actually image God. We cannot image God by ourselves. We can't fulfill the job description. We don't contain within ourselves both the unity and the diversity, the simplicity and the complexity of being one and community at the same time. God created us to need each other. And that's why he created Adam and Eve. Flip over to uh, Genesis 2. Just flip the page to page 2. I want to look at verses 18 through 25. Genesis 1 um, kind of the big picture of creation. Genesis 2 zooms in. We see some more detail. And at verses 18 through 25, what we find is that Adam and Eve were, in fact, created at slightly different times. And there's a reason for that. Starting in verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. It's just not, he said everything, everything up to this point. He created and it was good. He created and it was good. He created Adam and Eve, it was good. But it's not good that he should be alone. There's something lacking here. I will make a helper fit for him. He needs another. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. All right, two things going on here. One, what are the things that you name? They're things that you take responsibility for. They're things that you love. They're things that you have some connection with, right? You name your children. You name your car. You name your iPod. You know what I'm saying? Like you name things that you have a fondness for. You feel a protection over. You don't name things you hate. You don't name things that are completely disconnected to you, right? Things you don't own, right? There's a sense of ownership, of stewardship here. Adam is naming the animals. It shows his relationship to the created order. He's the steward, not the, he doesn't own it. God owns everything, but he's the steward. He's been placed over it like a, like a father over a family. The other thing that's going on is, is God is basically saying, let's find you a helper. Now, do you think God was confused here? Like, like Adam's just, he's like, man, I really thought the cow would do it, dude. 
thought he would be the one to be your helpmate. You know what I'm saying? Like, you think God was confused? No, God was not confused. God does this a lot. What you're going to find in Scripture is a lot of times God asks questions or he puts tests out there. It's not so that he can find something out. It's so we can. Adam needs to discover something about himself here. It's not like God's looking for the perfect helpmate. What he's trying to do is awaken within Adam a need for a helpmate, to recognize that he can't be what he was created to be on his own. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heaven and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. That's Adam discovering that. So the Lord God calls to deep sleep. Once he discovers this, once he realizes his need, God puts him to sleep. And while he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then he said to the man, this is at last. Catch that phrase, at last. The man, this is at last. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's that verse that we quoted from Ephesians 5. And the man and the wife were were naked and and not ashamed. Um, God took a rib out of Adam. You you think that's because he was a little bit afraid that he just might not be able to do it a second time? Like, I don't know, I might mess up the next time. Kangaroo or something, right? No, he took a rib out of Adam's side to reinforce the idea that, that, that they were imaging God. She was part of him in the same way that God is, in essence, united with God. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Adam was, in essence, united with Eve. For them to image God was for them to move into oneness with each other. They were part of each other. And this creation scenario was very clear. I mean, Adam could see what was going on. He was going to need her, and she was going to need him. And he was going to complete her in ways that she couldn't be complete without him, and, and, and she was going to complete him in ways that he would need her to do that. God made Adam aware of his need and then met that need for oneness by giving him someone else that he could become one with. This is the origin of marriage. All right, I'm going to pause here just to throw this out. Um, what we see here is God is creating us for community. We need others. And during this season, one of the most powerful experiences we can have of community is marriage. Marriage is the tightest, most intimate form of community where, where you are known and, and you know somebody more intimately, more vulnerably than you will in any other context. But I want you to think about this. Jesus said that when the coming kingdom comes, there will no longer be marriage nor giving in marriage. Marriage is for this season. Community isn't. In other words, when we move past this season, our need for community, our need for imaging God in community will be met in the people of God. And what that means is that for some of you, you're going to have that need met in community. Some of you aren't going to get married. Some of you possibly were married and are going to be moving into a season of singleness. What you need to hear is is the things that I'm talking about. Your deep need to image God in community should drive you to community, not away from it. 
And just because you're not in a season of marriage, or maybe that's not even the table for you, for whatever reason, doesn't mean your needs can't be met. Those needs can and should be met in the company of the community of God's people. Moving deeply into community with others who love God and will love you, who will know you as you need to be known, and you can know them as you need to know them. It will be inconvenient, it will be hard, it will be challenging, but it will meet deep needs of your soul that simply cannot be met by affinity groups or, or Facebook or any other form of false community. You need people, okay? So I'm throwing that out there so we can hit that piece. Now, marriage. Marriage is the tightest most intimate form of community God given to us. God didn't create us to be solitary beings. He, he created us to need each other. Where, where we know and are known, where we love and are loved, where we're protecting and being protected, where, where we are being called to be naked and unashamed. Naked with our souls, not just our bodies. Naked and unashamed. God gave us this gift of marriage so that we could know each other. But He didn't just give it to us so we could find happiness in it. See, when we image God, He's glorified by His image in us. He gave us marriage so that he could be glorified in it. And what that means is the covenant of marriage is never between simply a man and a woman. It is between that man, that woman, and their God. Because as they covenant together to find oneness together, they are doing it in the presence of, and in fact, in the power of God. It is his glory at the heart of that marriage. And it's ultimately his glory that's at stake in that marriage, not just our happiness. Um, and so as we pursue this, we're going to talk about this more in the coming weeks. As we pursue building a healthy marriage, we are in fact doing it to the honor of God, seeking to glorify God in the gift that he has given us, the gift of marriage. And ultimately that's why he protected marriage with a covenant right here at the beginning. I mean, right here at the beginning, after God, basically he, he officiates the first wedding between Adam and Eve, right? And he says, this is the way it's going to work from now on. Genesis 2.24 kind of lays it out. He says, this is how it's going to work as we move forward. In Genesis 2.24, go ahead and throw the slide up. There we go. Uh, it says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is a description by God of how we're supposed to move toward and into marriage. There are three parts here. Leave, hold fast. The King James Version may be more familiar to you. Leave and cleave and become one flesh. All right, let's talk about that very simply. Leave. What he's saying there is, is that a man should move into independence. A man should move into, like, like move out of his mom's basement, right? Mom shouldn't be washing your underwear anymore. You should no longer be, uh, you know, have a credit card that, that you're paying for everything and it comes out of your parents' account, right? You should leave. There should be financial independence. There should be emotional independence, psychological spiritual independence, like actually move into the strength of your manhood. A dude who, who has not stretched himself and challenged himself to move into independence is in no place to invite a young woman into the strength of a new family because he has never tie, cut the ties he needed to cut to become independent himself. He'll simply become codependent in a new way on his wife the same way he was codependent on his mother. That's a recipe for failure. A young dude should be moving towards strength and independence. Now, this isn't saying that a young woman shouldn't. That's not, it's not in any way saying that a young woman shouldn't also be discovering who she is and developing her gifts and moving independence herself. What it is saying, though, is that in the marriage relationship specifically, there's a key role that the man plays, and it requires him to be strong, 
It requires him to have an independence that he is inviting his wife into so that she doesn't have to become his caretaker. She doesn't have to become the one that does everything his mom used to do for him. Now, it doesn't mean that there isn't a code, you know, again, we don't, in interdependence, I'm not arguing against that at all. There are ways that we serve each other and we love each other and, and we complement each other. That's not, what I am talking about, though, is that a guy needs to move into a healthy place of strength and independence to invite, so he needs to leave. He needs to leave. And then he needs to invite a young woman into that independence, into that strength. He needs to cleave. The, the phrase here, hold fast, is actually covenant language. What it's saying is that young man should then move into a covenant relationship with a young woman. After you've left and become independent and you actually have something to invite a young woman into, you should invite her in. But do it in the context of covenant. You don't just go out and use women. You don't just go out and entertain yourself with women. You don't become a serial dater simply looking for ways to distract yourself from your boring and meaningless life. You actually invite a young woman into the strength of your independence. You, you covenant together with her. And that covenant is binding and it is lifelong, and it is serious business, the kind of business no boy has any, any business getting into, but, but every man should. It's man's business to love a wife. So he should cleave to her. He should hold fast, move into covenant relationship with her, and then the two become one flesh. Very graphic, very clear language for sexual intercourse. Right? They should have sex. Now, what's interesting is that's the exact opposite of of our great society's way of solving things. In our society, it's all about hookup, shackup, and breakup, right? We start out with sexual attraction. Then we move on to potential emotional compatibility. And if all that works out, then then maybe we'll move in together and eventually maybe get married, right? People today are postponing marriage longer than ever. They're using uh, living together as an alternative form of getting married. And they think this is a solution. What you need to realize is the stats are already in, you guys. The stats are in. People that live together before they get married actually have a higher divorce rate than people that don't. This is not a solution. Okay? It's not a solution. And so um, this is kind of God's plan for how we're supposed to move into marriage. Healthy independence, covenant commitment, sexual relations. Become one. Now, I want to talk for a minute about sex. We're going to talk more about it later, but we're going to talk for a little bit now. Um, in sex, the physical act of sex is symbolic of the spiritual reality of oneness, right? In sex, you, you think about it, in, in a sense, you don't know where one begins and the other ends. It's, it's a form of intense, incredible vulnerability of exposing yourself in a beautiful way, a vulnerable way. You're inviting somebody to see you naked and unashamed physically, but also spiritually and emotionally. And it's unique for humans. Now remember, humans were created in the image of God, right? Adam and Eve could look around and they could watch animals doing it all day long, right? And and they just went from partner to partner, right? Sometimes five times and whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like, Like animals just did it, right? Very, very different for humans. You know why? Because for us, it's not just a physical activity. It's a deeply spiritual one. It's a deeply spiritual one. Sex for a human is not simply something we do. It's not just a physical act. It's actually soul fusion. You are bonding yourself to the person that you're having sexual relations with. And in fact, biological study has found that this is true. 
In humans, there's a unique thing that happens with the release of hormones during the sexual experience actually emotionally, chemically bonds you to the person you're having sex with. You walk away with a greater attachment to that person, even if you don't want to. That's why there's no such thing truly as casual sex unless we've simply hardened ourselves to the complete effect that sex is supposed to have on our hearts, right? So we become one. That's the goal. Sex was given to consummate the marriage relationship. Once the covenant was made, sex was, would seal the deal, put it that way. But you're not supposed to just have it once and then be done with it. You know what I'm saying? Like, like hey, we got married, we had sex, we're done with that, right? Now we get to move on with the rest of life. It's supposed to not just be a covenant sealing activity, it is supposed to be a covenant renewing activity. Sex not only seals the marriage covenant, but it continues to renew the covenant. A healthy sexual relationship in a marriage continues to bond the marriage partners to one another. All right, you guys, as Christians, we should have very healthy, very active sexual lives. Married. (laughs) Married. Now, there may be times, I mean, honestly, there are times when physical things come in, when there's disabilities or age or, or different things that make it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the exceptions that we have to deal with, the hardships of simply being human. What I am talking about is in a normal marriage relationship, as long as everything works, if you're not having normal, regular sex, there's something wrong with your marriage. Sex is like a thermostat in marriage. If you're having it often and it's joyful, intimate, self-giving, self-receiving, loving, being loved, that's a thermostat of how things are going under the hood. You know what I'm saying? Like the spiritual and the emotional oneness piece. Because spiritual and emotional oneness always precede physical oneness. If you're having a very difficult time with the sexual part of your relationship, it's because there's something wrong with the spiritual and emotional oneness. The solution isn't to have more sex. Hmm, But part of the solution is to have more sex. Because sex is not only the thermostat of marriage, it's also the heater, right? The solution isn't just to have more sex, but part of the solution is to have more sex. Because sex is the renewing aspect, that physical connection of marriage. We're going to talk more about this, but I wanted to expose this because the biology of sex, again, drives us to oneness. The spiritual, emotional uh, foundation of coming into oneness is expressed in the physical activity of simply knowing one another in a biblical sense, and it needs to be a healthy, regular part of our lives. Christians should be having the best sex in our city, (laughs) and a lot of it. That's just the reality. That's the way the Bible kind of portrays this thing. Okay? Talking about married Christian people, right? Um, Now, here's the thing. We don't make sex an end in and of itself. The point of marriage isn't just to get to sex. Like, woohoo, I'm married. Now I finally get there, right? That's not what it's about. Sex is, in fact, um, again, a picture of oneness. What we need to realize is the greatest gift of marriage is not sex, but oneness. Spiritual emotional, physical oneness. When two become one, there is no greater joy. When when two love each other unconditionally, support each other, submit to one another, encourage one another, lay down their lives for one another, there's no more gratifying relationship. It meets deep needs in who you are because you were created to image God And to image God means to move into intimate relationship with others, specifically your spouse. 
Sex isn't the point, but it's part of the point. So when we get to verse 25, look at this, you guys. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. That's Eden. <laughs> I love that verse, right? They were naked and not ashamed, right? They, they went to work all day. They worked really hard. They're singing praise to God, right? There's no shame. There's no, you know, I mean, they're like productive and, and not trying to run away from it and not trying to run away from God. And then at the end of the day, they see each other and they're naked and they love it, right? They see each other. It's like, yes, you're the one I was looking forward to. And they celebrate it. Again, I mean, it's awesome. This is how marriage was supposed to be. An ongoing celebration of the other. A beautiful picture of self-forgetfulness and, and, and coming to cherish and love and celebrate the other. Where you don't have to worry about, man, my thing, my needs, my place. Because you've got somebody else worried about it. And you're worrying about theirs. It is this continual flow of giving and receiving, of loving and being loved that simply takes you deeper and deeper and deeper into the experience of oneness. See, oneness isn't a gift that you have and, and then you finally discover it. Oneness is something you continually discover. You move more and more deeply into it. That was, that was Eden. These guys just moving on a regular basis more and more into this oneness, naked and unashamed, loving God, loving each other, celebrating each other. Now, I said at the beginning that we need to, to know what marriage was meant to be in order to renew our hope for what it can be. The challenge is the description I have just given you is probably light years away from your marriage. Well, maybe not light years. Some days, right? There's a huge gap between real human experience of, of what our marriages are and this description, and that's because something went wrong. And we have to understand what went wrong if we're going to understand how we can set it right. Take a look at Genesis chapter 3. Because in Genesis chapter 3, everything goes wrong. Now, a serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, the serpent here we find from later um, study in theology, you know, the scripture later reveals that this is a demonic attack on humanity. Basically, there's a demonic attack trying to rob God of his glory in creation. And so they attack the steward of creation, Adam and Eve. And he said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice he doesn't blatantly lie about God, but he plants doubt. And what he does is he gets her to focus on the limitations instead of the freedoms, on the rules instead of the relationship. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. She responds, um, and what's interesting is she's the first legalist because she actually adds rules to what God said. That's what legalism is, taking God's rules and then adding our own to it. God never said, don't touch it. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. Now he's attacking her trust. You can't trust God. God's lying to you. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Yeah, you're going to see things you never wanted to see. He's telling the truth, but he's telling it in a twisted way. And you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. It's not going to be good. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, the apostle John later calls this the lust of the flesh. 
the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, the, the three sources that drive us to rebel against God, things that we're lusting for that only God can meet, but we're looking for things outside of God to meet them. She took its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. I think that phrase right there is one of the most damning phrases in all of Scripture. He gave, she gave some to her husband who was with her. He was being passive when he should have been active. He was not protecting when he should have been protecting. He was following when he should have been leading. And he ate. And the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. For the first time in human existence, they understood the essence of shame. The problem wasn't their physical nakedness. God had never made the physical body shameful. The problem was now they understood that they had something to hide. For the first time in human existence, they understood the nature of shame, which shame always drives us to hide. Whatever's shameful about us, we hide it from others, we hide it from ourselves, we hide it from our spouses, we hide it from, there are things about us that we are so deeply, deeply ashamed of that we want to just bury them in the darkest recesses of who we are. We don't even want to know them about ourselves. That was woken up right here. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, a physical symbol of a new spiritual reality for them. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. So we see them hiding now from the presence of God. His, his presence is no longer an invitation, it's a threat. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Do you think he knew where he was? Right? This is kind of like when my toddler was playing hide and seek. She's hiding behind the curtain in the living room. You can see her feet sticking out, you know, like this. Where are you? Why is he asking? He's asking because they need to know something about themselves. This is a deep and profound question. Not just about where are you hiding, but where is your heart? There's a new reality in your heart that you need to know about. And I'm going to give you an invitation to be honest about it. Where are you? You rejected my authority. You rejected my love. Will you now trust me and actually come to me instead of hiding? Will you be willing to step out even though you're so deeply and horrifyingly ashamed? Will you be able to step out into the presence of God and let him and his grace see you in your shame but love you anyway? Where are you? It's the question that was not only asked to Adam and Eve, but it's asked to all of us ever since. Where are you? God is pursuing. We are running. He is inviting and we are hiding. Where are you? And this is at the heart, as we'll see, of our marital problems. Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of your voice in your garden, the sound of the voice in your garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? He already knew. God's inviting Adam into a new kind of relationship with him where he was going to have to confess his sin. This was the first invitation to confess sin. God already knew. He was inviting Adam to be honest. But Adam, now deceived and enslaved by his sin, deeply ensnared by his shame, does what all of us do. He blame shifted. Verse 12, the man said, the woman that you gave to be with me. She gave me the tree, the fruit of the tree, and, and I ate, right? He's like, it's her fault. It's her fault. Blame shifting. Denying. Minimizing. Aren't those all the things that we do with our sin? 
All of our faults that we bring to marriage, we tend to magnify all the faults of our spouse and minimize our own. We put theirs under a spotlight. We put ours under the covers. Why? Because just like Adam and Eve, we're terrified to be the one at fault. We're terrified to let our brokenness be exposed. So we blame shift, we minimize, which destroys intimacy, destroys honesty. So he looks at her. And then the Lord God said to the woman, well, what is this you have done? And gives her the same invitation, remember? Questions are not to find out. Questions are invitations. He gives her an invitation to be honest. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Blame shift. We see now a whole new paradigm of relationships set loose in the created order, and it's a destructive one. One that is divorced and separated from the life of God and ultimately leads us to isolation and shame instead of intimacy and joy. That's why marriage is a battlefield. That's why marriage is a struggle. Because marriage now is a glorious ruin. It is glorious because we were created in the image of God for something that that is deeply satisfying. And there is an aspect of marriage that still reflects that glory, but it is in ruin because of our sin. Not our spouse's sin, our sin. We bring our brokenness into the bond, the covenant of marriage. And our hiding, our sin, our selfishness, our manipulation, our whatever, and theirs, undermines our attempt to move toward intimacy. Undermine our attempt to move toward oneness, the gift of marriage. Instead of freely giving, we now freely take and self-protect. Instead of freely loving, we now freely move towards selfishness. Instead of finding in our marriages a place of protection and freedom, we're now always living in, in, in fear of the danger of rejection and judgmental spirits, ours and theirs. Instead of peace, we find conflict. This is why we long for intimacy, but most marriages end in divorce. And this is why many that survive are barely surviving. You guys, that's the battlefield. That's the reality of what we're living in. Maybe your marriage is a mess. Maybe it's more than a mess. Maybe a bomb went off. You're just trying to figure out how you're going to survive. Maybe your marriage is good, but you already sense that things are not what they quite should be, and you're afraid to deal with it. Maybe you're single, and you're avoiding marriage because your parents made such a mess of it. All right, here's what I want to end with, and here's what I want you to hear. There is hope. There is hope. You know why? Because the God who created marriage is also in the business of redeeming marriage. The same God who didn't abandon us in the garden is the same God who will not abandon us now. In fact, right there in Genesis, we have the first promise of redemption. Take a look at verse 14. As God is explaining the consequences of, of of mankind's sin, he says this to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and 
above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Loaded language. I believe he's speaking to the demonic forces of judgment and that things will be set right. I will put enmity between you and the woman. You'll no longer find the same response you got between your offspring and her offspring. Now look, look at this, he. It goes from this general talk of, you know, your offspring and her offspring. It's going to be this enmity. He, who's the he? It's her offspring. He, one of her children, is going to bruise your head even though you're going to bruise his heel. You know the, who the he is here? It's Jesus. What he's saying is there will come a son of Eve. There will be an offspring of Eve. And that offspring, that son of Eve, is going to break your power, crush your head, even though you are going to bruise his heel. What God is promising here, this is the very first preaching of the gospel. The good news that God is in the business of redeeming broken people, of saving sinners, of forgiving sin, of setting things right, of healing what is broken. What he's saying is, I will send a son who will heal you. The essence of sin is us putting ourselves in the place of God, trying to rob him of his glory. The essence of salvation is God putting himself in the place of us of so fully identifying with our sin and our shame that when he died, he fully paid the price of our rebellion. He suffered the full judgment of our sin in our place, crushed. But in that crushing, he won our freedom. Satan thought that was his moment of triumph when he had Christ on the cross. He didn't realize that in that moment, his head was being crushed, that there was in fact a great reversal in the universe taking place in which God would freely forgive based on judgment being satisfied in Christ. His head was crushed even though Christ's heel was bruised. When God raised Jesus from the dead, it showed that the payment for our sin was complete. When we approach God now and we believe in Christ, we are fully forgiven. Not because of our record for God, but because of what God has done for us in Christ. God is fully satisfied in Christ. When we come to God in Christ, He's fully satisfied with us. And here's the deal, you guys. If He can raise Jesus from the dead, He can give hope to your marriage. If He can raise Jesus from the dead, He can change your heart. He can change your spouse's heart. He can restore intimacy and joy and, and, and give you the gift of oneness. Now, I want to be honest. That doesn't mean every marriage is going to make it. I'm not going to try and stand up here and, and, and give you empty promises that because there are, it takes two people submitting to God to fight together for intimacy and to move into oneness. There are going to be some marriages that fail. What I can promise you is this, God loves you. And as you are fighting for your marriage, even if your marriage fails, he will use that failed marriage for your good. He will advance His work in you through the suffering that that is introduced into your life. What you need to do is fight to image God, to glorify God, to love as He is leading you to love, to forgive and not become selfish, self-protecting, shame-driven. God has a work to do in you. And He can restore and He can set free. Your hope is not in your ability. Your hope is in His. And when your hope is in the right place, you'll come to trust the one who can deliver.
God asked Adam and Eve, where are you? It was an invitation to honesty. And this week, I'm going to encourage you as we go through this week to ask that question to yourself. Where, where are you? Where are you with God? Are you moving in intimacy and in joy? Are you drawing close to God? Are you seeking to feel and experience the outpouring of the love of God, knowing that He's not running from you? He's always inviting you, drawing near to you. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, he's standing there saying, where are you? If you feel like he's far from you, it's because you have run from him and you have closed your heart to his love. Where are you? How do you draw near? How do you open your heart to God's love? Where are you in your marriage? Are you closing your heart to your spouse? Self-protecting, blame-shifting. Where are you? Singles, where are you? Where are you finding and seeking intimacy and joy? Are you doing it in the presence of God and in the presence of community? You guys, here's the deal. We, we need to stand strong in God's grace. For the good of our marriages, for the good of our families, for the good of our community, for the good of our city. God has promised us much. Let's hope for much. I'm going to put some questions up on the screen. I'm going to ask you to do some, some reflection with God. Just take a little bit of time to pray. Meet God where you are, right? Adam and Eve didn't have to go clean themselves up. They didn't have to go. God was right there, and God is right here. You don't need to go fix yourself. You don't need to go fix stuff about yourself. It's an invitation to simply honestly come into His presence and feel His love. Do some business with God. Pray. We're also going to take our offering during this time. This is a chance for us to partner together as God's people to worship God with our money, but also to fund the work of the, the gospel. Right? This is how we reach out to our community. This is how we do events that, that deliver the gospel in powerful ways to people's lives. So I invite you to join us in that partnership and the joy of giving so we can worship God and, and see the gospel move forward. All right, I'm going to pray for us. We'll go into a time of response. We'll share communion in a moment. Father God, I thank you that uh, you are such a good and gracious, holy and humble God. Lord, I know for myself how quickly my heart wants to close off when I feel like Lauren has, I don't know, disrespected me or doesn't like me or criticized me. I just, I get defensive. I counterattack. I blame shift. God, when I look at you, You are the example of being all glorious and all humble. You have never run away because of our rebellion. You don't reject us because of our pride. You invite us in grace to freedom and forgiveness that you paid for so we could have it. You are the perfect example of what love is. Lord, I pray that you'll call our hearts to boldness and love that we will love more freely because we have been freely loved, that we will love more boldly because we have been boldly loved that we will hope because you've given us good reason to hope. Father, meet us where we are and then give us the courage to climb out of the bushes and be honest about who we are, what we've done, and just stand in your grace.